Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. My name's uh, Ed Conway. I'm the uh, economics editor for Sky News. Um, the title of the uh, uh, panel discussion this morning is Economic Rebuild, Where Are We Now? Um, so there's, that's, that's an open question, if ever I heard one. And hopefully we'll get lots of discussion along that basis this morning. Uh, thank you to Editorial Intelligence for putting this on. Uh, and uh, also to um, uh, R3 and to Sky News uh, for uh, sponsoring it. Um, I suppose this... Oh, and the other thing I should say is that this uh, event is, is on the record. Uh, it will be podcast. Uh, so do bear that in mind before saying anything particularly outrageous, both for the audience members or the panel members, or do say something outrageous, and it will be recorded in posterity. Um, so when, when this, uh, the title of this discussion was, uh, uh, was first um, suggested, that was a few months ago, and of course the answer to uh, the question of where are we now seemed rather different, uh, potentially, to where it is at the moment. At that point, the euro was in full-blown crisis. There were questions over whether it was going to survive at all, um, the UK was potentially on the brink of recession. The US was struggling to recover at all. There was the possibility of a credit crunch. Uh, now, a few months later, um, the European Central Bank has stepped in. Uh, these ELTROs, which no one really understood at first, have potentially saved the euro, at least for the time being, bought some time at the very least. The US looks like it's in a potentially a, a full-blown recovery. Uh, and the UK may well have avoided recession. So there is a lot to discuss and a lot to take stock of. And the big question, I suppose, is are we actually on the road to recovery? And more fundamentally, go back to the title here, is this a rebuilding? Are we actually creating a better, healthier financial system and economy? Or are we merely kind of storing up more problems for the future with some of the solutions that have been found so far? So lots to discuss, and of course then there's also the budget from last week. Um, but happily we have uh, an excellent and distinguished panel of experts to, to discuss it. Um, starting on my far left, Ian Wright. <laughs> uh, Ian Wright is the Shadow Minister for Competitiveness and Enterprise. He's been MP for Hartlepool since 2004, uh, succeeding Peter Mandelson. Uh, he's served on the Public Accounts and Modernisation Standing Committees and was PPS in the Department of Health. Uh, he was also at the Department of Children, Schools and Families, and he's a qualified accountant, so perhaps he can forensically explain some of the mess that we're in. Uh, moving on, Don Smith is the economist at ICAP. He focuses on uh, the UK, the Eurozone and the US. Uh, I've been lucky enough to have read his research for some time and can testify he's genuinely one of the most incisive minds out there in the city. Uh, Francis Coulson, to my immediate left, uh, is president of R3, the insolvency trade body. Uh, she's also partner and head of insolvency and business recovery uh, at Moon Beaver. She covers, amongst other things, general insolvency, fraud, VAT, provisional liquidity, and injunctions. Um, to my right, Guy Fraser Sampson, senior fellow at Cass Business School. He's been teaching a variety of postgraduate modules there for the past five years. Uh, he works across the whole spectrum of finance and investment, uh, but with particular emphasis on private equity, alternative assets, investment strategy, and the current financial crisis. Uh, and he has a number of books out, 
uh, and he's working on one at the moment that he was telling me about, which sounds intriguing, and one of his recent ones called, was called No Fair Finance. Um, Xavier Rollet is Chief Executive of the London Stock Exchange. Uh, he's one, for my, to my mind, one of the more thoughtful business leaders here uh, in London, uh, with one foot in the financial world, he was previously an investment banker, uh, and another in the corporate world. And the big question we're all trying in some ways to answer is how businesses will be able to find the cash they need to survive. And who better to answer that than the boss of the place where some of the big names actually try and raise their money. Finally, Jeremy Warner, uh, he's assistant editor and comment, uh, commentator at the Daily Telegraph. He's the newspaper's chief economics and business commentator. Previously, he was business and city editor at The Independent and The Independent on Sunday. He's won countless awards and is one of my favourite journalists. And I'm not just saying that because I used to work with him. <laughs> um, so we're going to start off. There are about one or two minutes, quick, quick kind of uh, introduction <coughs> where they see things at the moment, if that's possible, in a nutshell, um, from each of the panellists. And then we're going to move on to broader discussion with questions uh, from the audience. So, uh, Ian, why don't you kick us off? Thanks, Ed. I'm going to stand up if I can so I can see people at the back. Uh, I'm a politician. I haven't spoken for less than two minutes at any time in my life, but I'll do my... <laughs> I think I've lost 30 seconds already, do you, mate? Um, my concern, ladies and gentlemen, is that there isn't an acute sense of urgency in terms of making sure that we rebuild the economy. We are facing the most fierce wave and intense wave of competition in the global economy we've ever seen. And we could, we've been hit at, two, at least two different fronts. First, other developed nations, other mature economies realise that relying solely on single sectors for economic prosperity is probably not the way to have sustainable um, long-term economic growth and so they're trying to rebalance the economy towards more emphasis upon manufacturing. The US is a prime example of that but it's not the only one. Second and most frightening is the in huge um, competition coming from the BRIC countries but also from the next 11 countries in terms of economic growth. Brazil has just overtaken us in terms of the size uh, uh, of the economy. We really need to have a sense that we have to do something quickly urgently across government, society and the economy. And I don't get a sense we get that because my concern from a political point of view is the overriding economic policy is deficit reduction, at the exp sorting out the fiscal problems rather than making sure that we can embrace the challenges uh, and the opportunities of the future. Um, last week's budget didn't help. Maybe we'll come on to this, but I've got two or three concerns about that. First, business investment has been slashed from previous governments, uh, previous budgets, when George Osborne came to power, May 2010, his first budget, 10% growth in business investment was forecast for 2012. Now it's forecast to be 0.7%. So there's a real uncertainty there. Now, obviously, the Eurozone has an impact. Obviously, continuing instability in the Middle East and oil price has some impact. But government action also has an impact. And I'm concerned that we're not seeing a coordinated approach to government, a joined-up thinking um, within Whitehall um, and actually a lack of certainty and I think if we had a better and more mature active partnership and industrial strategy between government and industry I think that would reap rewards. At the moment we haven't got it, I think we're as far away from that as ever and I agree with Vince Cable when he says we don't have a compelling vision other than sorting out the fiscal mess. We really do need to act quickly otherwise we'll miss the boat. Excellent. Don Smith. My uh, principal concern in relation to where we are now uh, relates to the overall level of GDP growth in the UK, which is just palpably weak. I mean, 
the pace of recovery since the depths of the recession has been so slow in relation to um, you know, broader international comparisons. You know, there's been much said about the fact that the level of GDP in the UK uh, remains some 4% below its pre-recession peak. Uh, France and Germany are both above their peaks. German, um, the US is 2% above its peak. And the, the key issue uh, in relation to the UK economic growth environment relates to consumer spending. Uh, and in part, um, this taps into the severity of the fiscal austerity measures. Uh, not so much what has happened, but what is yet to come. I think we're about a quarter of the way through these measures, and we've only seen about 12% of the uh, scheduled spending cuts so far. Um, and inflation has been a problem as well. Um, sterling is around 25% lower uh, than its levels on a trade-weighted basis in 2008. I don't think the UK economy has really taken full advantage of that. I mean, the export growth hasn't been that bad. Um, we should be really reorienting uh, export growth towards faster-growing developing economies. We're still heavily reliant on uh, developed economies, but the devaluation of sterling has had a very big impact on inflation. Um, you look at nominal consumer spending patterns in relation to the G7, and the UK seems to track them fairly well. In real terms, because of higher inflation in the UK, uh, real spending growth here is very much weaker, and that accounts for about 3% of the drop in GDP since 2008. Uh, so my concerns really uh, relate to the outlook. It doesn't look as though confidence remains extremely weak in the UK. It doesn't look as though uh, the struggling economy uh, has uh, much scope for growth in the near or even medium term. Um, and even though these factors are, you know, help the, the UK in terms of its yield levels uh, and to, to, to some extent in relation to its... Uh, status as a safe haven uh, bond market, and we see, we have seen over the past year, uh, regular uh, incidents of heightened levels of risk aversion across the markets, and the UK government bond market gets captured in this flight to quality uh, that uh, moves the flight to quality flows that move into US Treasuries and, and bonds. It's all very well and good, but. Um, you know, part of the reason why yield levels remain so low uh, in the UK relates to the abjectly poor performance of the economy, and I just don't see a significant uh, upside potential there in the in, in the medium term. Thanks, Francis. Thank you. Um, this is a different, has been a different recession. I think um, if we think the rebuild is slow, uh, we have to remember that the destruction wasn't as great as it has been in previous recessions. Um, in 2011 under 1%, uh, 1 in 138 active companies uh, went into liquidation. Um, that's low compared to a peak of 2.6% uh, in 1993. Um, so we're looking, we're seeing destruction on, on, the, uh, on the high street. We've seen the collapse of the game group um, uh, yesterday and the retail sector is having a really hard time. Um, it's trying to adjust to uh, changing consumer uh, habits, <coughs> and, uh, but we never really had a, a spike in corporate insolvencies that we would have anticipated. Um, we, we get told the whole time in insolvency, well, you, you guys must be doing great, but <laughs> we, we, we're not. We're, we're quiet. The, one of the biggest uh, IP firms uh, last week laid off, um, uh, last month laid off 6% of its insolvency uh, staff. Um, so corporate insolvencies peaked in 2009 <coughs> at over uh, 25,000, and 2011 they dropped back to 21,000. Um, so we've seen uh, 
procedures designed for business rescue um, in, in the last recession came in really in the last recession. Uh, and in 2008, we saw the government's time to pay scheme uh, kick in, and that's still running four years later. Um, banks have been less willing to uh, pull the plug on businesses because of low asset values. Uh, and insolvency practitioners have been using a number of procedures to try and um, rescue parts of the business that are viable. Uh, practitioners get a bad press, but it's not the practitioner um, that causes the insolvency. They just try and rescue what they can out of, out of a bad job. Um, the, the, the media does concentrate on jobs lost, uh, as with game today, 2,100 jobs lost, but actually uh, 3,000 jobs saved. Um, if it had gone into liquidation, it would have they'd <coughs> all gone. Um, and our duty is to maximise returns to creditors, which we do well in the world. The World Bank data shows that we do well in that in this country. Um, in my day job, I uh, use insolvency processes to recover uh, fraud, um, fraud, money that's been taken by fraud. Uh, and we are trying to uh, get the government to focus on disqualifying uh, directors, uh, delinquent directors. Um, that, that has dropped to uh, our, our members put in reports about delinquent directors. Um, the government only disqualifies about one in five of those that we report as being delinquent. So that's low. And that, that takes money out of the economy that could be going to good businesses and makes it anti-competitive. Um, <coughs> there are a couple of very small changes the government could make to help us rescue business. They could make what is an expensive administration clearer and they could um, uh, deal with uh, ra ransom payments in administration where people treble the price of, of, of things. Uh, it makes it very difficult for our members to save businesses and, and we think that we could save another 2,000 businesses a year if you made that tiny change. So that's what we've been campaigning for. But it, it's a hard market and there's a lot of stagnant businesses out there. There hasn't been a clear out in, in this economy and that's different. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Guy. Yeah, I was slightly surprised by Ian's identification of the brick economies as strategic threats because it's my recollection that his party, when in power, gave large amounts of money to countries like Brazil and India to help them become more competitive with us. So that's at least one Labour po policy that can be said to have succeeded brilliantly. Um, I think in looking at the economy, it's not enough just to look at the private sector. It's, it's a two-handed affair. You've got the private sector, which creates wealth, and the public sector, which destroys wealth. And one point that doesn't seem to have got across to anybody in over recent years is we clearly have government which is much bigger than we can afford. So I don't see that you can talk about growing the economy just by looking at the private sector if the public sector is out there busily destroying the wealth which it creates. And I think, therefore, key to this discussion should be the state of the public finances. And in looking at those, I'm reminded of the famous slip of the tongue of Ed Balls a few years ago when he said, today we stand on the brink of the abyss. It is time for a bold step forward. <laughs> <laughs> and it would have been nice to see George Osborne taking a bold step backwards, indeed perhaps even several bold steps backwards away from the abyss, rather than just inching ever closer towards the edge and hoping that he's not going to fall over. I would remind people that what used to be called the public sector borrowing requirement, the name has been changed because, because of course government doesn't really borrow money, does it? For this year, according to which estimates you look at, is somewhere between 100 and 120 billion pounds. That's about 2,000 pounds for every man, woman and child in the country and that's just extra debt this year. And by the way, it's going to be more or less the same next year. And even on the government's own figures, it's not due to drop below 100 billion for another two years. So my question would be very simple. Why is it when government has already borrowed more money than it can ever pay back, when our national debt is already higher than it has ever been, is national debt getting higher rather than smaller? 
does that really smack of financial management which is responsible? So I say we have to look both at the private sector and the public sector. Excellent. Xavier Murray. Thank you. Um, I think we all know that, uh, from the, certainly the previous comments, that uh, the, the series of crises, uh, 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 and this particular one, which is the, uh, the most severe we've experienced in, in 75 years, uh, but are definitely not, not new to uh, a capital-based economy. Um, in the last 25 years, we've experienced several, Latin American debt crisis, savings and loans, obviously the crash of 87 based on excessive leverage. Uh, and then we had a series of other ones, uh, Mexico, Korea, Russia, actually Asia, Southeast Asia, Russia, then the internet bubble, and then this one. What makes this one different? And I think this one takes its roots back going to 1987, the crash, which saw a significant inflation of Fed policies, which had been focused on effectively whipping inflation, and afterwards became based on the premise that you could not have under any circumstances a recession in the U.S., so he had conditions, given the size of U.S. markets, that fed monetary expansion throughout the world. But the reason why this crisis is so different is we have a combination of private sector leverage through monetary easing, which obviously converted into banking balance sheets being excessively leveraged. Banks are essentially leveraged manufacturers, and they create investment through that. But that was combined for the first time in a long time with the culmination of a public finance debt crisis, which, which we've heard. Uh, and, and if you look at the situation of a number of Eurozone countries, including, including my, my own country, France, for example, has not balanced its budget in 35 years. And why is that? Why have public finances uh, uh, evolved this way in, in, in the Eurozone? And frankly, in Europe and beyond, in the United States, there's a similar crisis if you look at federal public finances, and if you had the, the dire uh, state of, of state public finances, obviously not all of them, you have an excess of debt. I think in Europe, debt has been used as a way to make up for a gradual decrease uh, or lack there of, of competitiveness. So really, this is about a competitiveness crisis. And why is debt making up for that lack of competitiveness? Because the cost of labor and the cost of operation and the cost of regulation and the cost of all the public services that are part of our social model has grown too high. And there is a deep deficit, particularly in the Eurozone, in terms of consumer spending because real wages have been held flat for 25 years. And why real wage is flat is because the cost of labor is way, way too high. And, and, and the difference is, of course, where is the money going? And we all know where it's going, and it's going into the public cost of administering, of administering pension, administering the healthcare system. So it's essential to fix this in a way that doesn't contribute to a deterioration of public finances. And what's <coughs> happened in the Eurozone in particular is that that debt that has been taken on to finance those cumulative deficits has in great part been mostly hidden. Even today, when you look at, when I hear frequently in the press, what is the debt of France? What is the debt of Italy? What is the debt of Spain? I see statistics that just simply are so far from the true situation of indebtedness because so many items like social security, like pension, like health care like in many countries are kept off balance sheet. Just like investment banks uh, uh, were keeping items off balance sheet up until 2008. And the adjusted levels of real debt to GDP, including private debt to individuals for retirement, 
are multiples of the 80 to 100 to 120 percent debt to GDP that, that are publicly reported. And, and here's an issue, and I think the, the Eurozone crisis has been fundamentally misunderstood, particularly by our American friends. America is a fundamentally economically driven entity. And it's very pleasing to see that America is starting, the, the American economy is starting to recover, and once again, we can hope, will we'll lead the world, uh, or at least contribute to an economic recovery around the world. But the issue is following, and I'll, I'll, I'll be very quick, the issue is the following, what was misunderstood is that the euro is not an economic creation, it is a political construction. It's in fact the, the monetary corollary of political will to create a union. And this is why we've been saying publicly that the euro was not going to collapse. The only thing that would make the euro collapse or any of its members leave the euro, other than in a managed fashion, in a collectively agreed fashion, is the abandonment of a political will to build the European Union, not the Eurozone. So Euro collapse means, to Eurozone government, the end of the Union. And so they are going to stop at nothing. And, and, and thankfully, Europe is extremely cash rich. And so there's plenty of capital to effectively make up for, for this uh, uh, problem. Unfortunately, Europe is very cash rich. And therefore, the public sector is now basically digging in and crowding out the public sector in terms of using those capital resources to make up for 35 years of deficit spending. And here's what seems to us to be the answer today, because of course the answer is that's all fine, that's analysis, we could disagree depending on our political connection, but how are we going to get out of there? And I think the good news is we have absolutely everything we need today to get the economy growing again. We got absolutely very large amounts of capital available, including here in the UK. Corporate balance sheets, particularly the large caps, have never been in better health. There is plenty of private sector capital ready to invest. Already today in the UK, small companies, companies between 10 to 250 employees, sorry, there's 197,000 of them, contribute over a third of the national growth value added. Um, what we are suggesting is that if you want the economy to grow again, that growth, of course, is not going to come out of the public sector, which is in deleveraging mode. It's not going to come out of blue chips either, because they are, as we've heard from BRICS or, or other areas of the world, they are facing tremendous cost-based competition. So globalization is a, a very good economic process in terms of bringing down the cost of goods and services. But large companies that operate globally have to be responsive to that. And the cost of labor in Europe is way too high. And so the solution is SMEs. Not SMEs also, but SMEs only. If we do not tackle the problem and we do not unleash the masses of unused capital in Europe and find a way to optimize through better regulation and better fiscal system their investment into the SME sector, there will be no job-based and economic growth recovery. Sorry, I exceeded my two minutes. That's um, okay. It'll be talked from you later on, but that's all right. Thank you. Uh, some, someone once said uh, forecasting is easy except when it comes to the, the future. Well, I'm, I'm um, finding it difficult enough to interpret the, the present at the moment, but with that uh, proviso 
uh, in mind. I'm a, a, a little more optimistic than the, the consensus on this um, panel of what I've heard of it um, so far. I mean, that's not to deny there aren't uh, some uh, severe headwinds still uh, to be faced. Uh, the fiscal consolidation, as has just been said, has, has really only just begun. We're, we're through the tax bit of it, but the, 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 the spending cuts uh, in real terms have, uh, are substantially still to come. There's been a bit more progress uh, made on household deleveraging. I mean, I was quite surprised when I looked at the numbers for this, and we've seen um, relative to income something like a, an 18% drop in household indebtedness, but it's still very high um, uh, compared to more or less any other advanced economy. Um, and, of course, the banks are still in uh, strongly deleveraging mo mode. So. Um, just one of these, um, these factors would be a bad enough constraint on growth. When you have all three deleveraging all at the same time, it's very bad news indeed. So, so why am I a little more optimistic? I, I think I'm taking uh, as my cue what's going on in the, the U.S., where I think you are beginning to see a, a self-sustaining uh, recovery beginning to establish itself. Uh, the U.S. is typically, what, a year, to, uh, six months to a year in advance of us. Uh, they, were, they were earlier into the downturn, and now they're coming out earlier. They're further on through the deleveraging um, process, particularly in the private sector. Um, uh, there are two ways of looking at the, the um, U.S. recovery. One is that um, you know, all economies with big underlying strengths will eventually snap back. And um, the less, the more gloomy interpretation is that the, the U.S. recovery is really just driven by intensely very, very loose uh, policy and that as the fiscal consolidation kicks in from this year onwards, uh, you'll see another false dawn in this recovery story. Well, I'm more in the former camp than, than the latter. I think there's a lot of momentum now building up in the U.S. economy. There's some serious inroads into unemployment have already been made, and I would expect those to continue. Um, as far as the UK is concerned, well, I think that, you know, tentatively we could begin to follow in the US's footsteps towards the end of uh, this year. I think the budget was um, a good pro-business budget, uh, sent out a lot of the right messages. We need a big resurgence in business investment in this country for the economy to start motoring again. And I think the budget began to deliver together with some of the other supply-side reforms we've seen, some of the right things being done there. Thank you very much. Right now, we have uh, around just under an hour for, for questions and discussion. And, so, and we have two roving mics, I'm told, that will come to, to, to those with questions. And so if you just raise your hands, then uh, this lady here is first. Thank you. And if you, sorry, if you say uh, your name and uh, your affiliation, if, if uh, that's relevant. Thank you. Uh, Paula Subaki, Chatham House. Um, just a point about the Eurozone, and uh, I disagree with uh, Xavier Rollet um, on the fiscal problems in the Eurozone. I think it's important to stress that most countries in the Eurozone actually enter the monetary union with... Uh, balanced deficit and debt level, at least they were in line with the 
Maastricht criteria. So below 3% deficit, 3% of GDP deficit, and 60% um, of GDP debt. The only countries which actually were admitted with debt over 60% were Belgium, Italy, and Greece. Italy and Greece have endemic public account problems. Other countries, they didn't. The problem in Europe was a monetary, was a banking and financial crisis which spilled over into and became a, a fiscal crisis. So the governments in Portugal, Spain, Ireland had to rescue the banking system. And they had to rescue the banking system because the monetary policy was inadequate, inappropriate for the kind of growth that these countries were experiencing. I agree with uh, Mr. Rollet that we have a competitiveness problem in Europe, but it's an intra-euro competitiveness. So again, the periphery has to become more competitive vis-a-vis -vis Germany. So the problem is now we need, obviously, fiscal austerity, but fiscal austerity has to be matched with growth. Otherwise, we continue to accumulate problems. Thank you. Alex Ritson, Convivial. Uh, with the greatest respect, I, I can't help but feel very irritated when I hear a Labour politician lecturing on the management of the public finances. Um, also, just to pick up on what uh, Guy and Xavier said uh, about the dangers of things which are off balance sheet. Uh, Gordon Brown's raid on the pension system has set in uh, the problems which will come for the public sector pension liability. And so my, my question is, what should politicians be doing about the public sector pension liability, which is off balance sheet at the moment, but if it's transferred on, um, the implications for our public finances are enormous. Thank you. Uh, Xavier, why don't you start by uh, responding to that question? Thank you. Uh, I think that's the very point that this lady, uh, I didn't pick up uh, your name, I'm sorry, I uh, didn't catch your name. Uh, that's the very point. The national debt accounting statistics going into monetary Euro union are just not accurate because the amount of debt liabilities kept off balance sheet, including in countries in the core of the Eurozone, not just the periphery, vastly exceed the amount of securitized debt. Um, and you know, the case of Italy, I think, is interesting compared to the case of France. Italy has 2,600 billion euros of debt. It's a huge amount of debt, but we know it. And so there's a lot less in terms of private liabilities to <laughs> citizens. France is the reverse. France sports, sported at the time less than 75% debt to GDP, but if you add social security, pensions, and in France, public as well as private pensions are a liability of the French state, as well as infrastructure debt and many others, which were not and still today are not included in the national debt to GDP statistics, and the French Cour des Comptes every year upbraids the government for keeping it off balance sheet. If you add that back up, you're far from 100%, you're over 200%. In fact, on an adjusted basis, both the UK, Germany, and France, if you add public and private sector debt in the UK, we're at 450%. In Germany, we're at 350%, and in France, we're at over 500%. That, to me, is the issue. And, and the only solution, and there is one, because in the case of France, thankfully, that hasn't been securitized, it's to raise the retirement age. 
if you raise the retirement age, let's say, to 70, and if you raise the working week, tying into the competitiveness issue, these problems diminish. That's why the bond market gave such a hard time to the national treasuries of the Eurozone. They've said, you got a choice. Stop hiding that debt, stop issuing more, restore competitiveness, and we'll buy you public debt. That's the point I was uh, making. It's not a point about whether the official uh, criteria were met. It's that the situation was actually substantially worse, and debt was used as a way to finance lack of competitiveness which is working week, 35 hours, is not competitive, which is retirement. Retiring as Greece, for example, at 53, uh, uh, which was the average retirement age, is not competitive. And we've seen in the case of Greece, which uh, no doubt had riots, but raised its retirement age from 53 to 67. Now that's a 50% increase for the li in the life of the average working Greek citizen. That's the sort of adjustments that have to be made. And if they are made, and that would be my answer to what's the solution to public finances, it's first and foremost about retirement age for those countries. And if you adjust that, you can see that you know, the numbers come much closer to a balancing position. I got you had yeah, something to add on. Just a couple of very quick points. I mean, I think firstly that the point about Maastricht, I mean, it does, if I may say so, underline the fact that this was a political move, not an economic move. The fact that anybody could think that national debt of 60% of GDP was acceptable and that budget deficits of 3% were acceptable, those limits were clearly set by politicians, uh, not economists or financial people. And just picking up on Xavier's points, I can actually put some flesh on those bones. If you look at the most recent Treasury statement, you'll see that if you add to the net debt figure, which is what they disclose at the front of the document, the costs of so-called financial intervention to save the banks, it goes up to about 150% of GDP. That's not far short of where Greece is now. And then to take Alex's point, if you then add in the potential liability for public sector pensions, well, the first rather worrying thing is nobody really knows what that number is. Nobody can actually calculate it. But there is general agreement that at the very least it's another 100% of GDP. So that takes us up to 250% at least once we abandon this sort of Enron-style accounting that government goes in for. And then, of course, to that you have to add potential liability under public-private infrastructure projects. So again, let's be conservative. Let's see that puts on another 20 or 30%. So the reality is that our national debt is probably somewhere close to 300% of GDP. And again, you know, politicians are not very good at telling us things we don't want to hear. The reality is we have a public sector pension system uh, which we simply cannot afford. And rather than tinkering around the edges, rather than saying, well, we're not going to use real inflation anymore, we're going to use civil service pretend inflation, it doesn't matter. The reality is we have a public pension system we cannot afford. And unless and until we have a government that is courageous enough to do something radical about that, there is no way out. Uh, but Ian, will you respond to the accusation that you've destroyed the pension system? Well, I don't, your colleagues? I don't buy into the fact that Gordon Brown, in a single budget, single-handedly destroyed the pension system. Um, he, he actually, in the same budget, cut corporation tax by 1%, with the quite explicit um, suggestion that maybe uh, companies could start investing more in, in pension schemes for their workers. Um, I think payment holidays over the last 10 or 15 years have not helped matters and I also don't like the idea that we should try and rush to the bottom and put against uh, public sector workers against private sector workers because therein I just think lies real uh, concerns uh, and tension. I think 
where I agree with John Hutton when he looked at this is actually it should be a sense of pride that we've got a, actually quite a decent system of pensions in the public sector um, and we should be trying to raise private sector pensions to the same level. I know, thinking about my father and grandfather, you know, the defined benefit, the final salary schemes that they had, have now gone. But I don't think that's a consequence of government policy. I think that's a consequence of companies wanting to move the risk away from themselves towards the workers, to have contribution, uh, defined contributions rather than defined benefits. Um, I think the policy response is what's already been said. I think the idea that these pensions in the public sector are gold-plated is also nonsense. The average public sector worker in my constituency retires on an average pension of £4,000 a year. They're not really having three or four Caribbean holidays on that. Um, but I think the policy response is a combination of what's already been mentioned. Um, raising the retirement age, rising contributions, and maybe some degree of uh, a sort of coming into land of reduced um, benefits. But that has to be done very much in a consultative manner rather than just being imposed, which is, I think, what the present government is trying to do, raise tension with the unions, and by that, raising tensions between public sector and private sector workers. I don't think that's in the interest of the economy. Okay, thank you. And Jeremy had a, a quick point, I think, as well. Yeah, I, I'm not so worried about the, the scale of the, the debt uh, my, myself. Uh, um, uh, I, I, I agree that the, some of these long-term liabilities are a real cause for uh, concern, but there is a sense in which you know, something which is unsustainable uh, is not eventually going to be sustained. And I'm not quite sure what the, the roadmap towards a more sustainable situation is going to be, but there will, something will happen uh, to reduce these uh, entitlements and to, to reduce the size of the overall uh, liability as far as as total national debt, private sector banking, um, uh, public sector debt is concerned. The, the figures are indeed frighteningly large, but there there is a sense in which debt is just a kind of hall of mirrors. You know, when 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 private debt goes down, public debt goes up, and vice versa. Um, uh, debt is backed by assets. I mean, take the household sector where you've got this. Uh, extraordinarily uh, large amount of debt relative to income, 166% it reached um, just before the Lehman's crisis. Come down a little bit since then, not by a huge amount, but a little, little bit. Uh, that, that, that is a frightening figure, but when you look at the asset side of the balance sheet, um, household assets are five, six, seven hundred percent of GDP, and in that context, and that's not just housing, that's financial assets too, it's, it's about 50-50, I think, last time I looked at the figures. Um, uh, in, in that context, it doesn't look quite so bad. So that uh, um, agreed uh, households have got a lot further to deleverage. Uh, but once you get a return to real increases in uh, wages, uh, you can see some steady, you'll see some steady erosion on debt-to-income ratios over the years ahead without necessarily... Uh, a continuation of the sort of consumer recession that we've had uh, to date. So uh, um, that's the key. Once we return to real income growth, uh, these very high levels of household leverage will begin to erode of their own accord. 
I like it. Optimism. Um, Francis, and then we'll, we'll take another couple okay. of questions. Yeah, I think um, obviously in the UK we've been living on the never never. I remember hearing, a, a, an, I think, an HSBC economist some, some a few years ago say, well, if you wanted to rescue the Japanese economy, you just parachute the British housewife in with a few credit cards, and, and that's the consumer spending has been um, keeping up the British economy. Um, the difficulty is that uh, we've then had a mass of consumer bankruptcies um, and there, it, the personal debt is just hidden. The, the actual figures that are coming out, the formal insolvencies, are a very small percentage of the picture. You've got uh, the predictions are for 18,000 bankruptcies by a year by 2015, which is very low. However, we've got uh, maybe a million or more people in debt management plans, which are uh, unregistered and, and fairly uh, un unregulated. Uh, and you've got about 16% of people only servicing interest on their debt. They're not producing anything, they're not, not spending anything, they're just simply paying the interest down on their debt. And that's going to take a very long time for people to get out of um, that when, it, as you say, incomes aren't rising. So there is a massive personal debt problem in this country, but it isn't really recorded, properly recorded anywhere. Okay, well, let's take a couple more questions then. Uh, Peter York, I think we're being a bit too global and a bit too macroeconomic, and I want to concentrate on the we, because the we does mean the nation-state, the UK, and the economic rebuild, and I think I heard very clearly that we aren't doing very well compared with our peers, and I want to know why the panel thinks that is, you know, in a sort of quite a dirt-under-the-nails way. What are the shortcomings of the British economy compared with its competitor peers? Because all the, the established Western nations uh, fa face the competition from the BRICS. That's really not, not the point. What it, is it in particular about the British economy that makes it less competitive? Because I think that we've heard that very clearly. And what does it call for from our government. You know, is austerity enough? Lots of people suggested that austerity isn't enough. Are they right? Okay, um, one more question. Uh, my name is Tom Maddox. Um, there's been talk that uh, a new uh, runway at Heathrow is back on the agenda now. How significant is that for our long-term competitiveness? Okay, fantastic. Well, Don, do you want to take the question on why, why is Britain in particular trouble? Yeah, I, I don't think Fundamentally, we have a, a, a major competitiveness problem. Now, I think it, you know, the, the issues in relation to the much weaker growth performance of the UK compared with uh, G7 peers uh, relates to the particular nature of what's been happening in recent years in this particular economy. The, part of it relates to the fundamental weakness of the banking sector. Um, and a lot of it, I think, does relate to the severity of the austerity measures. If you Look at what's been happening, for example, in the, in, in the U.S. Two factors have been driving the uh, recovery there. Uh, one is consumer spending uh, and one is net exports. Now, our net export performance since 2008 hasn't actually been that bad, but in part that relates to the fact that consumer spending growth has been so weak here uh, and import growth accordingly has been weaker. Um, and the U.S. obviously hasn't had the same pressure in relation to austerity that's been really putting a lot of pressure on, uh, on the household sector there. So, you know, it's a combination of factors, really. We, you know, we haven't had the scope or uh, ability to 
uh, respond to the changing business environment that's faced the economy because of the restraints placed on the economy in relation to uh, credit availability from the banking sector. And consumers are under extraordinary pressure here. Um, you know, throw another statistic at you, you know, looking at you know, household spending uh, since 2008 again, comparing with G7, household spending here in the UK is down by 5% uh, in real terms. Uh, other G7 economies, it's up by 1% on, on aggregate. And so it really is a, a, uh, a quite a peculiar set of circumstances that relate in part to the austerity measures, uh, in part to the weakness of the banking sector. Now, these things aren't going to last forever, but you know, my view on this is that we just have to grin and bear it. The, the, the performance of the UK economy has been so palpably weak uh, in comparison to our G7 uh, counterparts, and we just have to accept that this will probably uh, remain the case for the foreseeable future. Um, but I don't think fundamentally that we have a, uh, uh, a competitiveness issue. And I think that the, ultimately the longer-term outlook for the UK economy is actually you know, quite strong. Okay. Does anyone, anyone else on the panel have a, a question? As a guy, are we, are, we, are we worse when it comes to debt? You've talked about public debt in particular. Yeah. Are we really worse than, than many other countries in the world? Well, I, I give you another interesting statistic, and that is if you look at Britain versus America, for example, I think, I, like Jeremy, I'm much more bullish about America than some people, but for a slightly different reason, and that is that America has had now for well over 20 years a, a large and professionally managed venture capital industry, which we do not. And why is that important? Well, every year, according to the NVCA, venture capital investment in America is about 0.2% of GDP. And yet companies which either are or have been venture-backed contribute over 20% of US GDP. So that is an enormous economic multiplier of which America has had and continues to have the benefit and which we have not. And it's a combination of various things. We probably don't have time to go into that. But I do think that government missed a huge opportunity here when they took the money from banks to set up the, the so-called growth fund. Uh, and you have to ask yourself why they did that because the statistics are very clear. If you wanted really to help the British economy, that money should have been placed in the hands of professional early stage venture capital managers here in the UK. So why was that not done? And the answer is very simple, and that is, although it would have a dramatic effect, it would take at least 10 years for that effect to show through. And that's no good for politicians. They need something that can be shown to have some effect within the life of a single parliament. And I think it points up, I mean, if leave aside the fact that the money they've put into the growth capital is targeting sectors where capital is already available, so you're simply crowding out the private sector. But it does point up, I think, a much wider issue, and one I think in answer to the question at the back, we're not really going to get any progress on nitty-gritty uh, things for growth as long as we ask our politicians to take long-term decisions within an environment which rewards or punishes them simply on their short-term outcomes. How about the new runway at Heathrow? Uh, anyone, any strong feelings about that? I'd like to, um, if, if briefly, also link into the, 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 the growth theme because we mentioned, mentioned SMEs earlier. There's 4.8 million of them here in the UK. I'll answer Heathrow as well. Um, there's 4.8 million. There are 23 million SMEs within the EU, including the UK. So the UK has a much larger contingent as a ratio of both population and GDP than other European countries. It is, in fact, much better positioned 
to resume a faster growth pattern than almost any other European nation. By the way, interestingly, uh, against the 23 million European SMEs, you can match the statistic of unemployment, which is 22.7. So again, it's something we say often, and I apologize in advance to any of you who've heard us uh, saying that before, a single job creation per SME in the EU, which is not beyond the realm of possibilities, would effectively, potentially, on paper, wipe out employment. And why is this not happening? It's, again, because of access to capital. The point about America is very important, because startups cannot be financed by debt. They cannot be financed, in particular, by bank debt. Bank debt is an unsuitable financial tool, structurally unsuitable, to finance startups. Maybe at a later stage it is. We need to unleash the power of equity, stop regulating equities to death, and stop taxing equities to death. If we want to unleash the power and the amount of capital available going unused today in Europe that are not going into the SME sector, and again, the only solution, there is no other to growth, is the SME sector. And the advantage that the Americans have is that, as we've heard, have had several generations of startup capital. There's a large pool of, of expertise that has been reinvested over a generation. And interestingly enough, a very large chunk of capital that started the American venture capital, private equity, and hedge funds investing in specialist uh, uh, innovation in the US came from Europe. So it's not a risk or aversion to risk issue. It's a structural, regulatory, and fiscal issue. And I'd like to say two more points, and I'll, I'll be brief. One of the issues we have about competitiveness and export competitiveness in particular is linked to our lack of savings. We all know the fundamental economic equation, export minus export equals savings minus investment. So if you have a combination of private sector dissaving and, like in the UK, where there's a lot of household debt, and even temporarily public sector dissavings, that, and I'm afraid it's a macro answer, but it is lethal to your export competitiveness. So if the private sector is dissaving, you need to have the public sector in, in, in savings mode, or vice versa. A lot of countries in the Eurozone, like Italy and France, who have structural public dissavings, actually have high private sector savings rates, which helps somewhat their export competitiveness. And we can't do away with that. That's just a fundamental equation in economics. And lastly, about Heathrow, I would say it seems to me, other than the political controversy that we're not a part of, that having competitive uh, 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 tra air transportation capabilities is fundamental to the competitiveness of the U UK economy. And when I look at Heathrow, I, I see, and it's obviously something that was done a long time ago, a planning mistake. Dominant winds in the UK go east-west. So you shouldn't have a major airport that's either to the west or the east of London because traffic is going to be flying thousands of flights every day over London, which from a pollution and security perspective doesn't sound great. So it seems to us you need two things. You need to have something to the north or to the south, if only from planning perspective. But secondly, there is a concept in transportation which is very important if you want to leverage the efficiency, because this is about infrastructure. You need what is called in transportation management intermodality. So you need to connect your airport with your motorway system and with your rail system. Effectively, having a massive airport with rail underneath, particularly high-speed rail, motorway connections, so that then the benefit to the national infrastructure 
is felt perhaps uh, uh, you know, more uh, forcefully than if you separate your railway, particularly high speed, your freight, your uh, motorway, and your air transportation infrastructure. Um, Ian, I think, had a, a point I, as well. I just think Peter York has asked a really fundamental question, which is why is the British economy less competitive and what do we need from our government? My, my sense is that in the modern world, the, if Britain is quite good at quite a lot of things, we're not going to do very well. And so we really need to nurture the sectors in which we're world, world class. And we've got quite a few, actually. I'm quite optimistic about the long-term health of the British economy and our sectors, if we can nurture those things like aerospace, advanced manufacturing, pharmaceuticals, higher education. The City of London is world class, and we need to retain that expertise in financial services. Um, how do we do that? Well, it's going back to the point that I made earlier about having that active partnership between business and government. Um, I absolutely actually agree with what Guy was saying, which is the, the, the natural sense of a politician, our, our time horizon, is what's going to happen in this parliament and what's going to happen before the next election. Whereas actually what we need is that longer term horizon. We need to be thinking about you know, where are we in 20 or 30 years' time and how, how we can help and how we can provide a greater degree of certainty for business to invest. And I think that's the trick of all politicians in Parliament, uh, not just in government. I'd like to see a much longer time horizon. Um, I'd like to see more certainty in business deci uh, decisions, business policy. I'd like to see less tinkering to give business that confidence uh, to invest. I'd like to see gr greater coordination across government because one part of Whitehall doesn't know what the other part of Whitehall is doing when it comes to business policy. And actually, from being, in, from being a former minister, I know that certain departments don't think that business policy is anything to do with them. And I think in the modern world, that's a ridiculous stance to have. Yes, just a couple of things on SMEs. If not a nation of shopkeepers, we are certainly a nation of SMEs and delivers most of the GDP in this country. Uh, and the money is not getting directly to the SMEs, it's being stalled in the middle. That's one of our problems. SMEs have, um, R3 does a quarterly business distress index, and we're seeing that 34% of SMEs are seeing signs of distress, where only 19% of large companies are seeing signs of distress and 29% of them are seeing a fall in sales uh, compared to only 6% of large companies. So that's a massive depressing factor in the country which is made up of, of small businesses. Um, and the other thing that I think small businesses suffer from a, a great deal is uh, over-regulation. Uh, there's a huge amount of regulation in this country and I know that the, the government is keen on deregulation but if asked I'm never uh, never given an example of where regulations have been removed um, without a corresponding regulation going in so that is a massive cost to the, to the small business sector and I think it's a massive drag on the economy. Just very quickly the Federation of Small Businesses just quite recently put something out on this pointing out that the government claimed they were looking to reduce regulation whereas in actual fact government recently admitted there are 45 new sets of regulation currently waiting to come into force not including those emanating from our dear friends in Brussels. Okay. Jeremy has a quick point and then we'll take some yeah, more questions. I just wanted to uh, echo something Guy was uh, saying which is that there's a perfectly simple answer to Peter's um, question of why we're doing so much worse than our peers and it, it is simply that uh, the consumer sector of the economy in the UK was so much bigger than anywhere 
uh, almost anywhere else, uh, and it suffered uh, disproportionately in this downturn. In fact, if you look at Britain's relatively poor position on productivity, I think that that is explained by the fact that companies have relied too heavily in the past on domestic consumption to keep them going, sustain their growth, sustain their, you know, that, is, that, that has been their chief market here in the UK. They've not looked externally nearly enough for business, uh, and that's why we've suffered some loss of uh, uh, competitiveness. I, I, I mean, I, I couldn't disagree with um, uh, Ian more about, uh, you know, sure there are things government can do to, to help business. Essentially what you want from government is, is to, business wants from government is just to move out of the way, to set policy which is conducive to business environment, not to try and pick winners. I mean, no government minister is going to tell you what the big success, is going to be able to tell you where the big success stories of tomorrow are going to come from. The, the market will, will decide where, where those success stories come from. Claire Fox, Institute of Ideas. Um, I wanted to ask slightly differently about the mood music, the kind of cultural factors, because it seems to me that um, certainly in the public sphere, everything is anti-business, anti-growth and anti-corporate when you kind of hear the rhetoric. And if you think about the kind of public attitudes to corporations, they're not trusted, they're tax-avoiding, greedy people, uh, profits is a dirty word, and so on and so forth. Now, one of the things that I fear is that business is rather defensive under this assault and doesn't take it on. And in fact, we see politicians accommodating to it. But I don't think we can just blame the politicians for being opportunistic and ever thus whichever party, um, or even to blame them for the increasing regulation that they bring in. I'm just concerned that business is over-defensive culturally, and as a consequence is risk-averse and over-cautious and almost looks frightened by a few Occupy supporters in the Church of England shouting at it. I mean, do you think basically that you need to have more bulls? Uh, is what I'm trying to say, uh, rather than kind of um, simply saying it's the government's fault, it's everybody's fault, because I really do think I could do with capitalists behaving a bit more like capitalists uh, from now, now and occasionally. It's Gary Wright, BISS Research. Um, I do find myself uh, agreeing with Mr Rowley pretty much uh, 100%, I think, from, from what he said this morning. Um, I mean, what's clear to me is, is that uh, the current situation is not uh, one that we can spend our way out of. It's, uh, it's one, really, where we've got to invest our way out of. And to that end, um, it worries me a little bit that the city's not able to do what, it's, what it was originally set up to do, to get that investment into the SMEs, to get, to get that, uh, the entrepreneurs to, uh, to, to set up and to, to, to employ people. Um, and that's, pr I think, primarily because of the, uh, the banks uh, are log-jamming the, the, the capital. It's just simply not able to get through, probably won't get through for, for some time. And I think probably it, it calls for the city to, to come up with a, some more imaginative ways of, uh, of getting that, that capital to where it's needed to get the growth. And potentially the German model um, that they introduced some years ago might be something that we should follow. Okay, so business needs more balls. Xavier, um, obviously, is chief executive of LSE. The Occupy movement tried to occupy you 
So what's your, what's your response to that, that thought and that question? Well, our view is that your comment, sir, is exactly right. What the city is here to do is to provide capital uh, to fund growth and to fund business. Uh, and certainly within our modest mean, we're a small organization with a couple thousand employees, but that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, we launched a year and a half ago a retail-enabled corporate bond market uh, to uh, enable private capital to fund SMEs who are already advanced enough in the financing chain so that they can actually use debt. Um, and that platform is growing very, very fast. And uh, we're pleased to say already 155 companies have availed themselves of that. And there's many other things that, that certainly others can do. Actually, if you look at our uh, core equity engine uh, for SMEs, AIM, which in the past has on, on occasion been decried in the press, but if you look around the world, <coughs> trying to find anything quite like it as developed, as deep, and as successful an ecosystem. There's only two other countries in the world that have anything on that scale and on that depth and that level of success, meaning having survived through many cycles. This is not just about you know, raising capital for SMEs in the bull market. It's surviving through the, the, the contraction. And those two other countries are Korea and Canada. Uh, the U.S. doesn't have a, a, a registered market for SMEs, but as we've heard, they have a very, very highly developed uh, venture capital and private equity, which provide these early stage seed money. Uh, so this is an area that we've been quite passionate about, and I think my predecessor, her predecessor, and I'm now getting beaten over the head for repeating tirelessly, look at the cost of regulation pertaining to maintaining a listing. I'll give you an example. At the very, very junior end, the smallest company, and about 25% of AIM-listed companies are companies that basically are less than 25 million pounds of capitalization. It's a real ecosystem. It's not just a few large ones. It is a real, you know, a normal distribution, but with a substantial number of very small companies. It costs about 150,000 pounds a year to maintain an AIM listing. The LSE listing fee, by the way, is 5,000 pounds. So 145,000 is cost of effectively answering regulatory demands. I'm not saying we shouldn't regulate and let it loose, but there's certainly things we should do and could do to streamline the onus. Because if you're a 25 million pound company, and I'd say you're going to raise four or five million pounds, and it's going to cost you 150 grand a year to maintain that, it's just not worth it. So the cost of regulation is too high. But there's also, I think, I believe, and, and again, this is not something we invented. It's been going on for years. The appropriate financing tool for SMEs is equity. Why? Because you match the return expectation of the investor with that of the entrepreneur. An entrepreneur raising equity don't have to pay interest on the debt. They don't have to mortgage their house to secure the bank loan. Yet the investor, if the company fails, loses all their money. And one in three SMEs at startup level fail within the first three years of existence. On the other hand, the investor can multiply their money by 20, 30, 40 times. So there's perfect alignment. But look at the fiscal treatment of debt, which in the UK and many other nations is deductible. So the government is actually asking citizens to subsidize the use of debt. What is the major tool that at every time, at every turn, fuels the next bubble and the next boom-bust cycle, it's debt. So we're subsidizing debt on one hand, and now look at the taxation of equity, at the corporate income tax, at the dividend level, at the capital gains, 
and at the stamp duty uh, level. So there's also a transaction tax in the UK. The UK equity market has the lowest turnover velocity at less than 50% of any equity market in the OECD because equities are taxed to death. Yet we know it is the proper tool. So unless you, and we're not saying eliminate taxation, we're saying rebalance the weight of taxation, subsidize debt perhaps a little less, so you get fewer of these leverage, debt leverage induced bubbles in the financial sector, and reduce the weight of taxation, and we've proposed, and I think ultimately the idea would prevail, to eliminate some of these taxations specifically pertaining to the financing of SMEs. And you will actually see that the flow of capital, which is there today, waiting for investment opportunities, will be directed much more efficiently towards the SME sector. Savvy, isn't, isn't part of the problem in, in the UK, there's a, almost as much more suspicion among uh, SMEs of um, the established venture capital private equity industry than there is of the banking uh, uh, sector. I can't tell you the number of small businessmen I've come across who say they've been screwed by their private equity backers. Who, there's a tendency to regard them as just a lot of vultures and uh, out to destroy the business and undermine the entrepreneur who founded it and so on and so forth. Is that, is that not a real problem as far as the UK venture capital industry is concerned? I can't answer for the for the, the Venture Capital Association, but I can tell you that I, I personally have had the experience many years ago, four or five years ago, of setting up an SMEs, in fact, a, a biotech company with, with, with some partners. So I've actually gone through the experience of raising capital for a risky science-based venture from start. And what I believe is the issue um, is not so much the behavior, uh, there may be behavior issues in some cases, but you know I think business wants to maximize economic utility. We shouldn't ask capitalist-based companies to think of redistribution. We, think we should ask to, of, of them to think of creating wealth. And of course, the behavior can vary. To me, the issue about private equity and about uh, venture capital is that for venture capital, there just isn't enough of it in Europe. And so the competitive dynamics don't exist. When I started my business, uh, with my partners, I went around all the European capital, and there were very, very few meetings. And in the end, we ended up going to the United States and raising the capital much, much, with much greater ease. But I think there's also been a perversion of some of the functions that venture capital and private equity fund for the reason, again, of tax deductibility of debt. If you're a private equity fund, and you have the choice between funding 20 small ventures which each are going to become basically a consumer of resources. You've got to put a team. You've got to analyze the science. And at the end of the day, you're going to invest maybe 5, 10, 20 million in each one of them. On the other hand, as private equity, you can look at a massive corporation seeking to restructure a division. That could be, let's say, a 15 billion pound deal, just as, as a theoretical example. With the deductibility of debt, you're going to put the same amount of people, you're going to do the massive deal because that's where your profitability is going to come from. So here again, we see that a fiscal bias is disadvantaging within the private equity industry or favoring certain types of investment and disadvantaging the startups. And, and that I think is, is, I don't think you can blame private equity or venture capital. The US, of course, have had four or five generations of, of, of venture capital investment. Again, let me state this. 
a very, very large portion of private equity and venture capital companies in the U.S. were funded by European capital looking for, for returns. So we should think of what we could do to make the operation of venture capital, private equity, and SME financing much more attractive so that European capital stays here, and there's plenty of it. So if I can summarize, so uh, issue shares and not debt. Says, says chief executive of the biggest share uh, house in Europe. I, I, I have, unfortunately, to disappoint you, but today fixed income and bond trading is as big from a revenue standpoint for the LSE as equities. And it's been like this for a couple of years. It's a finance chain. At the early stage, it's clear that equity is the best tool. As the company matures, you need a balance between both debt and equity. Well, there's more balance. But how about the first question? Obviously, there is this... There is this issue. Things uh, have 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 changed. People are more, you know, less trusting. Whether it's of politicians, of business, they're less trusting, and this is surely a symptom of the whole Occupy movements that we're seeing at the moment. I just wonder if any of the panelists have any kind of strong thoughts about that. Should, should we be more trusting in business, more trusting in politicians? Don, do you, should we be more trusting in economists? Well, the record's not particularly good, is it, for economists, <laughs> admittedly. Um, I guess we, you know, we, we, we are never going to capture everything, but, um, uh, you know, the, there are important drivers of economic activity, and, you know, economists certainly, they, they try and see the big picture and try and understand the broad dynamics. Um, it's been a very difficult environment, obviously, for uh, the economics profession and um, business in general. Uh, and there is, you know, we, we see it, especially in the financial markets, you know, risk aversion and uncertainty uh, has been so high, so elevated for, for so long. And it's had such a huge impact on liquidity channels through the financial markets and also the economy. You know, I'm a firm believer in uh, the importance of liquidity. Uh, and once, you know, liquidity hugely depends on confidence uh, and, you know, uh, to, to some degree certainty. Um, and this has been a huge problem for the financial markets and it's manifested itself across, you know, economic performance. Uh, for particularly the Eurozone, but the UK as well. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, we, we are still, you know, judging by the price action that we see in financial markets, the, the risk premium that's still very evident uh, across a vast array of, uh, of assets, financial market assets. Uh, risk aversion remains very, very high, and important sectors of the of the markets, the banks in particular. And we will see, you know, the the money market transactions remain very, very. Uh, you know, the, the degree of distrust that we continue to see uh, across the major banking institutions across the whole of the eurozone remains uh, frighteningly elevated, um, and um, uh, these are conditions which. Uh, will take a long, long time to, uh, to fully correct themselves. Um, and we, and we, we've obviously seen some improvement over the last year uh, or so, but um, we're, we're still a long way away from what one would regard as normal conditions for financial markets and therefore liquidity provision across the, uh, across the markets. Well, let's, we've got time for a couple more questions. Uh, Patricia Hamzai with Crayab Gavin Anderson. Um, I want to just return to the um, point about what 
has maybe holding Britain back. And I just w really wanted to understand, we've heard a lot about labor being a big component, the high cost of labor, the long-term liabilities of pensions, obviously investing in skills and training for positioning people for the future. But if you look to small countries, my company is Swedish, so Sweden or, or big economies like Germany, they, the, the unions, particularly unions and industry, work together to think about the person and not the job, save the person, not the job. And I, in this country, as you can tell I'm not from this country, um, in this country the relationship between business and unions seem really you know, very harsh and, 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 and confrontational. And is there something that we could do to really change that dynamic so that we are, both sides are really looking to the long term of, of this economy? Because I just think that that's really a critical piece of the puzzle. Okay. Um, Stephen Hoare. Um, I edit the Guardian postgraduate report and run a small business, Lyndon Lee. Um, my observation from... Um, what's been discussed by the panel is that um, there's a lot more success stories out there. Um, you have the business schools, which is a sort of sector in itself, um, many of whom are run these um, venture capital um, incubator units, startups for technology businesses and technology transfer. You've got Cass Business School, London Business School, um, Saeed Cranfield and they've all unlike the government which has been <laughs> steadily bashing British business schools um, they've been taking a very long term view and it's very interesting to see that um, a lot of the companies they've, that I reported on um, 10, 15 years ago are now um, you know, top of the SME, they, they, a lot of them have, are publicly listed. So, um, you know, what should the government be doing about that? Why aren't the banks involved in that? And um, Thank you. Um, well, Ian, first of all, unions yes. presumably have some uh, experience of dealing, dealing with the unions. I have a view or two about unions, yes. Could, um, we, could we come to a more kind of healthy relationship? I don't think confrontation. I think Patricia is absolutely right. I don't think confrontation and having that adversarial um, view between uh, Labour and government is very helpful. You mentioned Sweden. I mean, what's very striking, in the, in the World Bank's recent rankings of where are the most competitive nations on earth, Sweden is top. And it mentions, well actually they're in the, the three S's, the top three are Sweden, Switzerland and Singapore really interesting about how they emphasise the long term, how they emphasise R&D, the importance of skills, um, and they emphasise the, the importance of worker cooperation. And this is what you have in Germany as well. And I think this is going to be essential. If we're going to have a long term approach um, to the economy that's more productive, over the long term, more sustainable in every sense over the long term, I definitely think we need something like this. I don't think current um, baiting on the part of the government is helpful for anybody concerned. I think unions and government working together, not in some sort of wishy-washy yoghurt-knitting way or anything like that. I think that I'm thinking about hard-nosed business, making sure that Britain is more com competitive and productive in the long term. I think that needs active worker involvement in that. Um, Stephen, your point about business schools, which I just want to mention very important, I think this is a really good example of where there's a lack of joined-up thinking in government, because I think business skills provide uh, simply 
absolute excellent, um, they're an excellent asset for the British economy. The postgraduate base is particularly important, especially foreign students who come, who study, the injection of new ideas, innovation, benefits us all, and then they go out and become Anglophiles across the world. It's really important. The immigration cap from the government indicates that Britain is not open for business when it comes to foreign students coming to study here. I think that sends out such a wrong message. And again, I think, I think Biz probably lament this, and this is in, home, in the Home Office. This is, what, this is a good example of where I don't think Whitehall is talking in a coordinated manner that's very pro-business. Fantastic. I think Frances had uh, a point to make. Yes, um, I think the other thing that would help um, business and entrepreneurs in, in this country is some financial education. We have, um, the majority of our members say that most businesses fail because of poor management. So you can have the best invention in the world, but we, we fail to exploit it because we, we, our businesses fail because of poor management. Uh, and we've been trying to get financial education into schools, not only personal financial education, but business financial education. It should be a curriculum um, tip books thing so that uh, when you do get somebody who's got a great idea that they can actually take it to fruition and, and develop it rather than have it developed by somebody else or lose it to another country and I think that's, that's, that's key in this country. A lot of our failures are just because of lack of uh, knowledge and, and lack of management. Thank you. And Guy? Yeah, I'm firstly, obviously, I'd like to say thank you for that unsolicited testimonial for Cass Business School, but um, I'd also, <laughs> also like to agree completely with what Ian said. I think this is a classic example, and I do agree with him, what he said generally about lack of joined-up government. This immigration problem is, is, is a huge problem for business schools, and why do it? If you really believe that business schools are a national asset, and of course I'm sure everyone in this room does, then why place these unnecessary obstacles in their way? Why not, on the contrary, try to to encourage them in what they do. And I also agree completely with Francis. I mean, why is it that our school leavers understand nothing about finance, for example? It would be very, very easy to teach finance and business skills to sixth formers. So why on earth aren't we doing it? But just on a more general point, um, there's the conventional wisdom, if you like, amongst economists is that once you have a developed economy, and I suppose you could argue that since we were the first into the Industrial Revolution, we are perhaps the most developed economy in the world, you can only, if you ignore the ups and downs of the economic cycle, you can only generate real long-term growth through either innovation and education. And if anybody here has interviewed a school leaver recently, you will know that we've done a pretty awful job on education. And innovation, I'm afraid, takes us back to the, the encouraging the business schools and encouraging venture capital. Fantastic. Thank you. Now, uh, unfortunately, we uh, have run out of time for questions. I'm, I'm going to uh, use my prerogative as, as chairman and ask one question uh, to each of the panellists, which uh, demands a one-word answer, uh, strict one-word answer policy, which is... Do you think that do you think that the euro will uh, survive with its current membership intact within two years? A one-word answer, please, starting with Ian. Depends. Right. <laughs> that is one word. No. No from Don. No. No from Francis. No. No. Xavier. Yes, probably. <laughs> well, that's two words, but we'll take the first of them. Yes, Jeremy. though it shouldn't. <laughs> right, there we are. The, the words quotient is going up as we go along the line. Um, well, thank you very much to all of our panellists today, and thank you for your questions. It's been very enlivening and very interesting. Thank you very much.